We're in uh, the second last of our vision series. Uh, the last one will be on Easter Day. And um, this morning I want to talk about, uh, the theme is transcendence in an age of disenchantment, but it's actually focusing on the part of our vision, which is that we want to be a church that inspires creatives, creative, the creative classes. Now, part of the theme of um, the vision series, you've, heard, you've probably heard me talk about a lot of times the word secular, and you'll, you'll, you would have used the word yourself, and you will have um, engaged in conversation with people about what it means to live in a secular society. But the problem with the word secular is that it's a word that has a lot of different meaning for different people. What does it actually mean? There are um, a type of uh, philosophers and, and, and thinkers that argue a case for secularism, which is probably the most overly used definition, which is that um, it, it's, it's what you would call a subtraction story. So secular, in their definition, is a society where religion or belief in a deity or the eternity or transcendence is taken away subtracted and once you take it away so these people argue then society is much better for it so you think about the new atheists like Richard Dawkins for example um, Sam Harris those kind of authors that are popular in the in the in the bookshops they will talk about this subtraction argument hello how are you going he's very interested in the sermon front row um, so now there's a problem with this argument, the subtraction theory. What is the problem with this subtraction theory of secularism? It doesn't actually explain how society is. It doesn't actually explain our experience of the world. Because the secular world we live in doesn't actually feel as, as uh, straightforward as that. Rather, we experience a phenomena that haunts us. Think about the people who are neither believers or new atheists, which is probably most people in Melbourne. They're neither full-on believers in like a committed religion, nor are they full-on atheists. They inhabit this kind of in-between space. So the subtraction story doesn't explain much for them. And you can read about this in, in books and in the arts and in, in movies and, and, and even when you talk to people. Um, I'll give you an example from an author, a British author that I've been reading about lately called Julian Barnes. He's not a Christian. He's about 50 years old, I think, and he, he writes a lot for the newspaper as well as books. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of comment on this kind of a phrase that he said once in, in, in this book that he's re recently written called Nothing to be Frightened of, and he says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That's what I say when the question is put. I asked my brother, who has taught philosophy at Oxford, Geneva, and the Sorbonne, what he thought of such a statement without revealing that it was my own, and he replied with a single word, soppy. <laughs> and he goes on to explain that he dreads the gradual drifting away of Christianity. He loves the texture which it grows in society or gave to religious art, especially interested in art. He says, 
I miss the God that inspired Italian painting and French stained glass, German music and the English chapter houses, and those tumbled down heaps of stone on Celtic headlands which were once symbolic beacons in the darkness and the storm. He's, he's most haunted by the aesthetic, by the arts. And he realises that all these artists wouldn't have done what they did unless they were inspired by belief in God or the transcendent or the eternity. And so he doubts his doubts. And for a person who doubts, it's very haunting to doubt your doubts. He also talks about his fear of death. He says when he was 20, he was an atheist. or He told everyone he was an atheist. Now he's 50. He's worried about dying. And now he says, I'm an agnostic. Maybe there is something after life. His mother was an atheist. Um, She converted from Methodism to socialism and embraced atheism. And she just said to him, well, now that we we live longer, because we used to mostly die around the age of 40 or 50, you know, a couple hundred years ago, now we live longer, we have more time to get worried about death. That's why you're believing. But he's not convinced. And he asks these really powerful questions. He asks questions like, what makes us give up God? How do we go on pursuing and footling around material gods when we know or strongly suspect that there's no afterlife? Are religious people more virtuous than atheists? Give you another example, Steve Jobs, icon of the late 20th century and 21st century, we all know who he is, champion of computer science and technology, had a strong spiritual side but was not committed to any organised religion as such. And towards the end of his life, Jobs uh, was pondering life after death and he said that he really liked the idea that the conscience lived on after death. He said that he'd like to think that something survives. I think we all, all do, don't we? It's strange to think that you build up all this wisdom, he said, and then it's all gone. And then he said, maybe it's a bit like an on-off switch, you know, on and then when you die, it's just off. And then he said... Perhaps that's why I don't like to put on-off switches on my, my technology, my products. Well, um, an author that I really love, uh, who's an academic, who's written about secularism, is called, his name's Charles Taylor. And he wrote a famous book called A Secular Age, which is probably the most quoted book on secularism. And he's not a subtractionist, and he has a different understanding of what a secular society is. And I want to talk about this before we get into the passage. And he's got five ideas I want to share with you. First of all, he says this. Let's think about about secularity, about the contestability of belief. In other words, he's saying, really what secular society now seems to mean is that whatever we believe can be challenged. See, 500 years ago, he says, isn't it strange to think that in the the Western world 500 years ago, it was almost impossible that you, didn't believe, that you believe, didn't believe in God. That's a double negative. Mostly everyone believed in God. And now, he says, isn't it strange to think in 500 years, so many people, most, most people in the West, um, it's not surprising if they don't believe in God. How do we go from 1,500 to 2,000? 500 years, what changed? It's not hard to imagine in Melbourne, um, any of our friends or family not believing in some kind of God or eternity or transcendence. But we know lots of people still do believe in something, don't we? It's not like there's this complete atheism everywhere. So the big change that he says that's happened is not that 
you know, in 500 years we've all become atheists, but that we know there are lots of options for people on the table. The big difference now is that people who believe can imagine what it's like not to believe. Our relatives and friends don't believe. We can imagine it. The second idea he says about secularism now is that the secularism is not just the remainder after we remove the religious. To not believe in God is never to be an unbeliever. It's to believe something else. It's to believe in something, but just not sure what it is. I think that's what Barnes was and Steve Jobs, they're in that space, aren't they? Thirdly, Charles Taylor says that modernity had to create something new. If it's going to take away the religious as a kind of a dominant idea, he had to create something new to believe. Modernity created the idea that you could have meaningful and significant full life without God, transcendence or eternity. That's the John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven kind of idea. He sort of paints this other picture, an alternative for us, that we all get excited about. This life could be lived in what um, Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, exclusive humanism. That's Melbourne, 2016. One way to think about it is like, you know, um, now it's because this shows you how much of a sports ignoramus I am. What's Telstra Dome called these days? Eddie Had Stadium, there you go. So if you go to Eddie Had Stadium, which I have been to, um, <laughs> to see uh, rock concerts, um, when it rains, the roof closes in like that. And the imminent frame is kind of like that. It's like we believe that the roof is closing in and there's nothing above that roof. Modernity says it's all inside the roof. And, and what Charles Taylor does is he goes to show how, despite we believe the roof is closed in the secular age, we still try and create transcendent experiences inside the Etihad Stadium. Fourthly, he says, now we all find ourselves in this imminent frame. Even if you do believe in God, you still find yourself in that imminent frame. The world that we live in is shaped with this narrative that there is no God or eternity. So there are all these cross pressures going on in the imminent frame, in this exclusive humanism. If you're not a believer, you are haunted by this idea that maybe something does exist. Maybe God does exist. But if you're a believer, you're also haunted by the narrative of secularism. If you're a believer, you're haunted by maybe there's nothing out there. And you will know, if you're a Christian in this room, that you've been haunted by that. And if you're not a Christian in here, you also know you're probably here today because you're haunted by this idea. Maybe God does exist. It goes both ways. Everyone's caught in this space. And, and the church often gets this wrong. Um, the church in the West messes up with young people, especially when we ignore the imminent frame and we just assume that everyone believes and all these young people. When I say young, I'm saying up to Gen, Gen Xs, even baby boomers, they're saying, oh, well, I've got lots of friends and family who don't believe anymore. Charles Taylor says, we're all Thomas now. And lastly, about secularism, he says, secularity does not end belief. Rather, all these cross pressures, they create like this supernova of beliefs. 
an explosion of different options. Instead of the rise of unbelief, there's an explosion of beliefs in so many different things. Think about our context, um, whether it's a shallow thing like the Eat, Pray, Love book or the well-being industry, um, Western Buddhism. There's so many options out there. Now, what, what has this got to do with creatives? I think artists, perhaps more than anyone else, show an awareness of the imminent frame. They show this awareness of the tensions in this world. Even non-believing artists flirt with belief. Often seem, they often seem to have an awareness of eternity and help us to pursue God. So we go to stadium concerts, like I said, at Etihad Stadium, and we watch the U2 concert and the big LED screens and the music, and we feel this sense of the transcendence. The music is pointing us to something. In the case of U2, I think it's kind of intentional. But even if it's not intentional, we're drawn to the galleries and to, to, to literature and to film. And he's loving the sermon. That's why, that's why we're drawn to the arts. Now, let's get to the, the passage now. I want you to open the passage because we're going to look at the passage. That was a big foundational thing. You probably read this, but you might have read this passage before, famous. Let me just give you some background. Paul finds himself, the Apostle Paul, Paul finds himself in Athens at a time when philosophy, scholarship, the arts and spirituality, they'd all converged, creating this similar kind of supernova of beliefs, like what we're experiencing in Melbourne in 2016. And in that context, Paul goes to preach the gospel. In the first century, Athens was still one of the most famous centres of wisdom, of um, architecture, art, philosophy. There were some other bigger cities now, Corinth and, and, and Alexandria, that had surpassed Athens, but still it had this great heritage, a reputation. And at the, the centre of the ancient city was this rocky hill called the Acropolis. And there were many temples that were built there, the Pantheon, uh, the Parthenon, sorry, to name one temple. Uh, dedicated to the virgin goddess Athena. Near to the Acropolis was the Areopagus, and this is where the reading is set, which for many years was uh, the seat of Athens' highest court of justice. And it stopped being that now, although they still um, did the court cases around murder at the Areopagus. And this, this hill had stone seats where the judges, the council met there. And in this passage, Paul is speaking to the uh, people of the Areopagus in Acts 17. And he even goes on to convert one of the council members called Dionysius. And soon, perhaps um, three or four weeks later, after this event um, that we're going to look at, he eventually leaves the city and he doesn't plant a church there. It doesn't seem, even seem that he intentionally went there as part of his big strategy, but he just ended up being there on his own. Nevertheless, he preaches this amazing sermon, which has gone on to shape thinking, a lot of thinking around ministry and mission. And this passage reveals Paul's emotional attachment to these Athenian Christians. He tried to proclaim Christ to these cynics and these mockers. And so let's have a look at what he says. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
He's starting with a kind of a compliment. You're very religious. It's hard to tell if he's being um, cynical or not because it could also be interpreted as you're very superstitious, but probably he's trying to start off with a, with a compliment to open up the conversation. He's showing some respects of their reaching after God or the word is groping after God that gets used a few times in this passage. Even though, as he goes on to say, they're going to be doing it in ignorance. He's getting their attention before challenging their understanding. And this raises an important point as we think about ministry and mission as, as Mary Creek inside the secular society. Don't assume people are not religious or not spiritual. I think um, when we say the no religion tribes, what we're not saying is people who don't have a belief in something. We talk about ministry to the no religion tribes of the inner north of Melbourne. If Charles Taylor is right, we shouldn't assume they have no beliefs at all. Very few people we meet will be committed atheists. We need to get used to the idea that our mission in evangelism is in a context where there is a marketplace of beliefs. And I think the artists are in a special place where they can speak into this context. If you're an artist of any kind, whether you're just a, a private one that doesn't tell anyone, or one who's doing it for your full-time job, and there are people in, in this room who do that, I want you to make stuff, release your album, paint your canvases, write, build, play your instrument, do whatever you can to stir the forces in your place in the imminent frame to cause people to be haunted by the idea of belief in eternity. And as you do, be a Christian presence. Talk about your faith. Let's look at verse 23, where he goes on. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So after complimenting their being religious, he then offers a critique. He observes the idol to the unknown God. And he begins to use it as a segue to discuss the one true God. He says, you guys are ignorant. Or, you're groping around to try and find God, but you don't know what you're doing. This idol was one amongst many. And it represented, in a way, polytheism. Because it was one amongst many. Polytheism was huge in Athens at that time. And yet he uses this emblem of polytheism to begin to talk about monotheism. I think it's good that we can see that he's being open and charitable with his conversation in one sense. He's saying, you guys are really religious. But then he's not being open and charitable, sorry, he's not being open-ended with his theology. So he's now saying, okay, I want to challenge you about some of the things that you believe. And as we talk about being open and charitable in our conversations with people, it doesn't mean open-ended theologically. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he explodes their idea. The idea that the God of creation can live in handmade shrines. It's silly and illogical, he says. God doesn't need anything from anyone else. So why do we think he needs us to build shrines for him? or idols for him. And he's actually agreeing with some of the Greek philosophies here who argued that God couldn't be contained in a temple. Therefore it follows, says Paul, that God can't be contained in an idol either. 
This is an apologetics argument using arguments not specific to Christianity. God needs nothing from humanity and gives to humanity life, breath and all the things needed for life. God's grace in creation on behalf of all people. That is the point. This idea of apologetics, of kind of presenting a defence of your faith, is something that we are, I think we all need to be more up to date with. Um, if you've read C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller, there's other apologetics specialists, you will have read good apologetics. And it's really worth everyone becoming good at apologetics because you need to have answers to the, the questions. If someone says to you, why is this suffering? Is the Bible reliable? You know, um, is there... Aren't all religions true? You need to have some kind of answer, not just mumble around. Um, you know, the other day, uh, Leo said to me, Dad, why, why can't I see God? And, you know, like, that's an apologetics question. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a way to answer it for a five-year-old. But it's a really good question. Do you know how to answer questions like that, even for your own family members, let alone your friends, your work colleagues at the water cooler? Read up on apologetics. Be able to talk like Paul does in, in the Areopagus. So the reason for God or uh, mere Christianity, the reason for God by Tim Keller or mere Christianity, good places to start. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. So Paul introduces the idea of God the creator and Adam the first created man, although he doesn't actually say the name Adam. and he, Later on he doesn't say the name Jesus, interestingly, either. But he's building a case for the gospel. Uh, the reference to Adam shows that all people have their roots in the creator God. We are created, he says, to seek after him, to seek after God, or to reach for him, to grope for him. So what you're doing, he's saying, as you're groping for God, you're doing the right thing. That's what you've been made for. Humans seek after God because we want to find him. I mean, think back to Julian Barnes said, you know, I miss him. I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I'd love to find him. Paul is appealing to the idea of God the creator as a way to then raise the idea of looking for God's actual will and plan. God has revealed himself more explicitly than in the general way, he's saying, that he has done in creation. He's saying, Yes, you will see God generally in creation, but that's not enough to find him. You're going to need something more specific. Paul says, without an appreciation of God's plan and action, God will not be found. I think it's good here to be reminded as we think about um, as people who are trying to connect with other people over, over faith, to move from the general to the specific. The temptation you will have is not to talk about the specific as you talk to your friends. But Paul is right. No one's going to find God unless we get to the specific. And the most specific is Jesus himself. Artists should not hold back 
from portraying specific revelation of God. I've been in uh, two bands in my life. I've been in two bands, but in two Christian bands in my life. And um, the first, first Christian band was what you call, we're Christians, but, we, you know, but we're not a Christian band. We, you know, we're a presence in the pubs. And um, <clears throat> you know, when we're there, we just hang out with the pub owners and we're like missionaries down there. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know coming to the pub. So we have all these general truths about God in our songs. Uh, the other band that I, I'm in, the band I'm currently in, the Anti-Fall Movement, Paul, we're, we're, we have specific revelation in our songs. We sing about Jesus. And it's quite a different thing. And Paul and I are very aware that um, the, the pressures on us as creatives uh, is to not sing about Jesus because even our Christian friends think it's bad. You know, when you're in a pub and you hear, Jesus, I love you, you know, I mean, we don't sing that actually. But things, things like... Um, <laughs> You know, singing about waiting for heaven and our sin and Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and the blood of Jesus and, um, you know, uh, those kind of, that kind of words when it comes out in a pub, I see the Christians going, ooh, you know. <laughs> um, it feels weird to have that, you know. Um, but I think this is what we should be more bold as Christian artists, to be explicit, to not be embarrassed about these things. Let's get out there with a specific revelation. Because if, if we're in an imminent frame, there's competing ideas and there's an explosion of beliefs out there, we may as well make our belief pretty loud. Let's get it out there and not hide. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. This idea that we live and move in God is actually more an idea from Greek philosophy, but it overlaps with Christian, the Christian gospel. And Paul's saying, well... You know, it's not, it's not something that I get from the Bible word for word, but this is a theology that we share. And that is a good strategy when you're talking to people or when you're communicating in your arts, um, that you try and find common ground. Uh, because we often do share beliefs with people from, who have whole different beliefs. It's, it's looking for the golden nugget of their idea. Often people come up with funny ideas, but inside it is a golden nugget. I remember... One time when I was, uh, Tim got me to speak at, I'd be on a panel for Mustard at Scotch College in Year 12, with Year 12 boys, they were doing a debate. And one of the boys said, um, who was arguing the case for atheism, said, you know, this idea that um, Jesus would have to die for my sins, I mean, that's just, I'm just not a bad person. I just don't believe I'm a bad person, you know, and I'm just not a sinner. And I can see what he's saying. He, he's saying, you know, I look at the whole of my life and I, I'm not an axe murderer, you know. I mean, I'm, I might, you know, make a few mistakes. But generally, I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, live in Hawthorne and I go to Scotch College and I've never committed a crime. And inside that idea, what I tried to do is find the golden nugget, but I, I couldn't, so I flipped it. And I said, well, actually, I am a sinner. And I tried to say, I think none of you guys are sinners, but I, I just know that I am a sinner. And I tried to sort of stand on his argument and flip it upside down. That's the kind of thing we've got to do. We've got to look for connections. Let's move to verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think about the divine being. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul returns to this idea of God the creator and the absurdity of idolatry. And he says that we are God's children, and so the creator should not be thought of as a piece of gold or stone, 
or silver or a product of human skill and imagination. The theology behind this idea is that humanity is made in the divine image, which means that human beings are living, animated, conscious beings, not objects like idols. So God must be the same and more. Then he finishes in verse 30 and says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul has so far critiqued the Athenians with ignorance, uh, saying that they're, 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 they're groping in ignorance. This is a bold move considering the Athenians were so proud of their intelligence and their scholarly history. He said to them that, okay, well, for most of history, God has overlooked your ignorance, but now you've got no excuse. There's been specific revelation. Now he's commanding all to repent. This is a turning point in Paul's speech. He's saying that God calls for and holds people responsible for understanding this response. And in verse 31, he alludes to Jesus by, by saying, talking about a man who he has appointed to judge the world. And the resurrection of this man is proof of the future event that is going to take place. He leaves them hanging on the edge of their seat. Who is it that Paul is talking about? Who is this man who's going to come and judge? If you were being haunted by the idea of God, well, now you're going to be really haunted. Now you're going to be really drawn in. I think this is a really important role for artists, to raise people's attention, to point them to Jesus so that they will hear more. Use your testimony as a theme in your art. Use the great works of art as a theme in your art. <coughs> Write about God's power in your life. Provoke people. And if you do it well, this is what's going to happen, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So Paul effectively preached the gospel and then divided the crowd. Some of them sneered, but others of them wanted to hear more. And the gospel is a sword that will divide people. If we preach a gospel that makes everyone feel good, then we're probably not preaching the gospel. The gospel sings and it stings. It cuts the heart and it sets the heart on fire. We do live in a secular world, but it is not a world void of religion or a world void of beliefs, but a world with thousands of options for belief. There's been a supernova of beliefs unleashed on our world so that now believers are haunted by the idea that our faith is not true. And unbelievers are haunted by the idea that their non-belief is also untrue. This is the imminent frame. This is the secular society we live in. This is the Eddie Head Stadium with the roof closed. Our job as the church in this secular world, as Mary Creek Anglicans and as artists, is to realise this, this imminent frame. Don't believe that people have totally given up on belief, but they, they just don't know what to believe. Speak, create art, stir the pot, point people to Jesus. Be bold like Paul in Athens and trust God to work his power. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for that day that Paul spoke in the Areopagus. And we thank you for the, the way he modelled to us this connection of um, 
using Athenian culture to talk about faith, that he challenged their ideas, that he engaged with cynics and he stirred the pot. And we pray that we won't be afraid to do that. Amen.